Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. This is an orientation. I am oriented to a place where, at the very least, I cannot be happy with sexual monogamy that has a lot of constraint. Like if I am in a relationship where I'm not allowed to do anything, that makes me very unhappy. Historically monogamous people want to know, do I have to ask permission? Does she have to ask permission? And the answer is no, because we've had so many conversations that Amanda pretty much intrinsically knows like what my boundaries are. Monogamy is something that people can do. Just because primates don't do it doesn't mean people shouldn't do it. And so I'm in favor of people's agency and their sexual expression. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is John Romanello. (sighs) Got to tell you, man, I freaking loved this interview. So this is an interview. One of the things I love about podcasting is I get to have these conversations with people about things I'm interested in. So I'm interested in learning about the world of polyamory. So there's so many people that are talking about it and I see it on TV, but I don't really know what it is. I don't really understand it. I I didn't know anything about it. So I went to the man who has been willing to be public about it. Now, what's interesting is I've known the name John Romanello for years. He was in the fitness world. He's a fitness legend. And he's in the business coaching world. He's in the the storytelling world. So it's like, I know the name, but I didn't know that it was the same guy who was the polyamory guy, who was the psychedelic guy, who was the fitness. All of these John Romanellos came together. They came together in this interview. And we took a deep dive in a lot of different areas. And this was one of those interviews that all of the questions that I had sort of went out the window because as you will hear, John is extraordinarily open, articulate, and is really very compelling in what he believes in. Certainly in no way makes you believe what he believes and is willing to, you know, Uh, allow you to be you and, and him be him. But there was so much that I learned from this interview that I know you're gonna love this interview. So please sit back and enjoy this wide ranging conversation with John Romanello. Giovanni Vincenzo Romanello III. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is great to be here. You know, man, I am super pumped that you're here. This is going to be fun. And, you know, I thought of something before I jumped on this. We haven't officially met. I don't think, although, I don't know if it's some LSD trip I was on, but I feel like around 15 years ago-ish, I was at a Yannick Silver event and we met. Have you ever been there and do you know who that is? I know Yannick. Was it in DC by any chance? Yeah. 
Yes. Then I was there. I did not attend the event, but at the time, so this is 15 years ago, which uh, was probably wasn't quite that, was it that long ago? Goodness. Let me see. That would have been 2005. No, it probably, it probably was closer to about 10 years ago. It, it could have been. Could have been. It was probably closer to 10 years ago. Uh, I was living here in New York City, and it probably would have been either Joel Marion or Craig Ballantyne, who I know Craig and Yannick have had a, a long and storied relationship, who invited me down. And as I often do, I just got in the car and drove down and crashed the event, did not buy a ticket, and simply hung out in the lobby and met people and drank. That sounds like the, the exact time we would have met. I think that's exactly what happened. And yeah, I think that was it. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. Well, nice to officially meet you. And, you know, with a name like uh, Giovanni Vincenzo Romanello third, I got to just say that you would figure or you would assume that you couldn't be any more Italian, but your grandma was half black from Alabama. Your grandfather was Polish, but a little quarter of Italian. Yeah. Where did that strong Italian name come from? Yeah, that is such a great question. So my paternal grandfather was Giovanni Vincenzo Romanello I. He was half Italian and the other half was Polish Jew. And so I don't know why he was named Giovanni Vincenzo Romanello. And more importantly, I don't know why when he came to the United... Or he was actually... Yeah, no, he, he was born in Italy. And I don't know why when he came to the United States and married my grandmother, who was half black and then Irish and Native American, I have no idea why they then decided to name my father Giovanni and why my father then decided to pass it on. to. At that point, it's just like, it's just a strong name. And it is, it is certainly more Italian than I am. But I grew up with a what I would consider to be like a mixed race upbringing. As, I, as you mentioned, my grandmother's half black. She's from Buckaloo County, Alabama. And so I, I sort of grew up with a lot of people with very strong Southern accents and then people who had absolutely no connection to being Italian other than that we eat pasta on holidays. And some of my family sound like they're in Goodfellas, but that that's more a function of being from New York than it is <laughs> being Italian. <laughs> Do you feel, do you identify, feel energetically, whichever way you want to answer it, more connected to black culture, white culture, Italian culture, Southern culture, which one? I am a New Yorker and that's really the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I grew up in Queens. I, so, yeah, I understand. All right. so yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Queens. I'm from Jackson Heights. I'm from Rigo Park. Okay. Oh, there you go. And then I grew up on Long Island. And so it's it's really interesting because I I grew up in a very mixed race family. My again, my grandmother was half black. Her first husband was black. And so she had two kids with him. And so my aunt and uncle, they're mostly black. And then my first cousin, who is like the closest person in my family, who's like my, one of my closest friends, her dad is Puerto Rican. And so she's half Puerto Rican and then like mostly black and then some Irish and Native American. And then there's me. And so I, I like I identify as being someone who is from a mixed race family, but it would be I think it would be very irresponsible of me to say that I have the experience, the outward experience of a mixed race person because I present outwardly as a white guy. And I, you know what? Let me rephrase. If I'm in the East or if I'm in California, I present as what people perceive to be as a white guy. If I'm from very, very white places, I am perceived as maybe Latino. Uh, so depending on on where you're from and how white white people are to you, I may not be entirely Yeah, it's contextual. I get it. But yeah, my experience is, is as like a white guy from New York. I, I don't particularly identify with being Italian other than the name. I identify as being a New Yorker, which means that I am... My political beliefs are in line with that. I'm, I'm, you know, sociologically very liberal. I'm fiscally fairly conservative, uh, you know, but I, I very much am just, just a New Yorker. That's really my, my shtick. I love it. I love New York too. I, um, I went to the uh, high school of performing arts and I connected through uh, Jackson mm -hmm. Heights uh, on the subway every morning, 74th street. Can't go anywhere in New York without connecting there. No. Yeah. You have, you have to connect through Jackson Heights or, or Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to just uh, for context first, before we get into um, 
the area that I want to talk about. I want to rewind the clock a little bit. When you were in uh, college, you didn't love the way you looked mm-hmm. and you decided, hey, I want to go all in on fitness. I want to get shredded. Yeah. I want to pack on a bunch of muscle. I want to become a fitness model, train clients, write about fitness. And then you kind of slowly decided that that world wasn't really for you any longer, I think. Are you still in that world or how do you feel about that? You know, I tried to live with a foot in both worlds for a while. I think you you just, you get out of the thing, uh, whatever you can get out of it for as long as you can get out of it. And for me, you know, I was in the fitness world for the better part of 15 years. I went through the body transformation in maybe... 2000 or 2001. I started my fitness business in 2003. And then I did that exclusively until 2015 when I started business coaching. And then I started doing more higher level consulting and investment. And then now I'm doing uh, a lot of the storytelling and book consulting, etc. And so there was a point at which I tried to live with a foot in each world. I had gotten a lot out of fitness and the business was really big and it, I wasn't enjoying it. And this is a big lesson. So I'll try to, I'll try not to just sit here and sort of masturbate to my own legend, but rather give some lessons. There comes a point at which you have to make decisions and, and, um, for me, with the fitness stuff, it had become a golden anchor. It w- I, I was doing other things, and so it was no longer making that much money comparatively. You know, there was a point at which the fitness business was making six figures a month, and then you know, back in maybe twenty, very early twenty eighteen, uh, it had dwindled, and it's like fifteen to twenty grand a month, and I wasn't really doing anything. I had people running it for me. And I was like, all right, I either need to stop this or I need to go all in again. It's really hard to walk away from an easy 200 grand a year, no matter how much money you're making. That's, that's a thing, particularly when you grow up without money, that people tell you not to do. And certainly when I put it in context, the idea of having grown up with no money and not, not being able to, you know, the idea of being able to walk away from that was anathema. And so I tried to go all in and build it up and get people to work on it. And it just caused this a really big emotional breakdown. And so it really was a golden anchor where I just had to separate from the gold and just sort of shut it down completely. And as soon as I made that decision, which was maybe March of 2019, I was like, fuck it. I don't care how much money it makes. I'm just done. I'm never going to look at it again. Everything in my life sort of got better. I went through, it it was the last thing holding me to my old life. And I went through this ego transformation through a number of of modalities. And now it's, even though that was less than a year ago that I fully separated and closed it down, I hadn't been doing any of the fitness stuff for quite a while, but I had people working for me. But now if somebody approaches me and tries to talk to me about fitness. I'm like, dude, this is like trying to buy lemonade from the stand I had when I was eight years old. This is just, you can't, we can't even have this conversation. And so it was not that I, I did anything other than grew and evolved. I kept changing and growing and it stopped being satisfying in the way that I would have needed it to. And by 2013, when I wrote my bestseller, I pretty much said everything I needed to say And then 2014 to 2015 was making sure that it was said. And then 2015, when I got into the business coaching, I was still in fitness because that was the particular pond in which I was a very big fish and therefore uh, an area where I could, from which I could pull clients in terms of the business coaching. And now the thing that I have long desired is happening where there are people who come to me for writing or storytelling coaching who have no idea that I ever did fitness. And I think that for me is very satisfying. Even people who may be in fitness now, they just, it's strange that they haven't heard of me, but they haven't. And so I'm, I'm very much out of that business. I, I still work with fitness professionals and still do advising for fitness companies, but I myself am very happy to never have to compute anyone's macros ever again. (laughs) I understand. I really, really understand that. Uh, You know, it's interesting because I, as you're telling this story, remember there were, there were two 
there were two things that came up. One thing was I was listening to a podcast. I can't remember the name with uh, Aubrey Marcus's ex girlfriend relationship he was in that you were on mm-hmm. um, with Amanda. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I had interviewed Amanda um, about a year ago. And so I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's really interesting. But there was something about your name that stuck out where I was like, I feel like I know this guy, but I don't know where I know him. And then mm-hmm. I was in California and uh, I was at uh, uh, our mutual friend, Chris Harder's house. And we we're talking about, it. he's like, you got to meet John. And I was like, wait a minute. I know a fitness guy named John and I know the John that was on this podcast, which John are you talking about? And then I realized it's all the same John. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the one guy. It's it's one guy. There's no way it's one guy. So, you know, in doing this interview, I have to do interviews around things that I'm curious about and interested in. And the thing I'm most interested in with you is not necessarily the business coaching. It's not necessarily the fitness stuff, although you have tremendous value in those areas for sure. But the thing that I'm fascinated by, and I think most people would be fascinated by, is the world of polyamory. And Mm. that is that you are so open and so willing to discuss it publicly that if you're down, I want to go down the polyamory hole with you, uh, pun intended, uh, and, and talk with you and, and talk with you, just have a real honest conversation about it because I find, I find the whole thing just absolutely fascinating. So are you down for that? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. All right. So you've shared publicly that you are quote unquote polyamorous. I'm going to put some air quotes around it for the uninitiated. What exactly does that mean? Okay. Polyamory is a French word meaning many loves. And in the context that it is used, it, it really, um, it exists as a counterpoint to monogamy. So it simply means that, uh, and, and there are, there are levels of this. So the, the umbrella term can be what we call ethical non-monogamy, which can include everything from an open relationship to polyamory. Polyamory has the distinction of being a relationship style in which both partners are open to, available for, and, quote, allowed to develop deep relationships with other people. So you could have multiple partners, multiple girlfriends, whereas something like ethical non-monogamy, there might be more casual dating and something that is what typically called an open relationship. That is usually what's called partnered non-monogamy. And it essentially, it's more of a sexual denotation. So in the case of Amanda and I, either one or both of us could be sleeping with other people together or separately. Uh, Whereas in poly, it, it has more of a relational designation. And I tend to look at polyamory and monogamy as orientations existing on a spectrum, like heterosexuality and homosexuality. And I think that everybody falls somewhere on that spectrum. I think that I, I, I do not have any issue with monogamy. I think that when it's fulfilling, when people can do monogamy successfully and it makes them happy, it's beautiful. I just think that if we look at it as an orientation, and we look at the, the bell curve for standard distribution, that would mean that if monogamy is at one end of that spectrum and, and polyamory is at the other end, with monogamy being you are purely emotionally and sexually oriented toward monogamy, that's the only thing that's going to make you happy. And there is the other end where you are purely relationally, emotionally, and sexually oriented toward polyamory, that's the only thing that's going to make you happy and feel fully expressed, then the bulk of us, about 60 to 80% will fall somewhere in the middle. And that would be the, you know, where you fall naturally. That's your nature. But then, of course, there's your nurture. And you grow up in a society that socializes you to believe that monogamy is the only way. And if you are if, if that spectrum goes from one to seven, when, and I'm using those numbers because that's the Kinsey scale used for sexuality to measure homosexuality and heterosexuality. So if it goes from one to seven on the, the poly mon- monogamy scale, and you're like a three, which means that you're two and a half a three. So if you were naturally born at around that, 
you can be socialized to like a two or a one, and then you can live very happy monogamously. If you're a four, if you're like right in the middle, you can be socialized to a two and a half and it'll be difficult, but you can, you can do it. And I think this is where most people are. They're somewhere between like a three and a half and four and a half. That's just the standard distribution of a bell curve. And so a significant number of people, and if we, if we look at the, the way that divorce is usually the result of either financial stress or some sort of relational stress uh, coming from infidelity or something of that nature, then the vast majority of us are not good at monogamy. It is a struggle for us. That's not me attacking it. Those are just the facts. And if we look at, you know, the, the, the sort of historical context, it, it's monogamy is, is pretty new. And so I struggled with it for a very, very long time. And I tried to live monogamously. This is before I knew what polyamory was or before I knew that polyamory was an option for a way to set up your relationships. I just knew that after about six months to a year, I became very unhappy in my romantic relationships. And I, and I would be sitting across from a person I love, looking at them and being like, I love you so much and I want to be anywhere but here with anyone but you. And something about me is wrong and broken. And I went through the entire thing where I was like, am I a sex addict? Am I, do I have problems with commitment? Does this come from emotional stuff? And eventually found the, the community and did all the research. And then I realized, okay, for me, this is an orientation. I am oriented to a place where at the very least, I cannot be happy with sexual monogamy that has a lot of constraint. Like if I am in a relationship where I'm not allowed to do anything, that makes me very unhappy. If I'm in a relationship where I'm allowed, where it's, it, the constraint isn't there, then I don't necessarily need to be dating other people but I'm, I'm, it's, it's an, it's available to me, then I'm happy. And, uh, that is sort of how I came to it. I've tried every version of monogamy. I've tried every version of therapy. I tried every version of putting different labels on myself. I am not interested in or available for the debate that might happen as a result of this conversation where people just try to tell me all the ways that I'm wrong because I'm, I'm not going to be any less polyamorous than I'm going to be straight at the end of this conversation or anything that anyone can tell me. That's just the thing. It's an orientation and more and more sexual researchers are uh, accepting that and that, that is becoming a, a more prevalent and I think it will be the prevailing theory within the next 10 years. And it is what it is. So, you know, again, I'm all for monogamy. If it makes you happy, do it. If it doesn't, there are other ways to do it. And I'm not, not out here doing polyamory coaching. I just live in my life openly. Okay. I got it. Now I want to, I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like in real life. Drill it down a little bit more, let's say. So, all right. So if there's, if there's no constraints, that means that you know, you're in a relationship now mm-hmm. and if you want to tonight, Friday night, yep. you want to go meet another girl and go home with the other girl or bring that girl home to your home, mm-hmm. you, you have the, and, and for, forgive my, my, uh, my hesitation because I'm thinking, I don't want to use the wrong words, but right. you have the ability to mm-hmm. or the freedom to be yes. able to to do either it, based on the sort of like how you've set the relationship up is that right in many relational setups there is absolute freedom like that that's what's called more like relationship anarchy in the relationship container that i have with amanda we we have boundaries and we have we have i i wouldn't call them rules but it's expectations so i i personally um wouldn't engage with anyone without telling them that I am in a primary relationship. So for example, on all the the dating apps that I'm on, it's, it's very clear in my profile, I'm in an existing polyamorous relationship. And that is out of respect, not only to myself and to Amanda, but for the other person. I don't want to go on a date with anyone who thinks they might become my girlfriend or, or partner. I'm, I'm right now. That's not what I'm looking for. I am open to casual, uh, sexual encounters. I'm open to casual relational encounters. I can casually date someone, but I'm not looking for like a, a full secondary relationship. And so that conversation would be had with the other person. With regard to myself and Amanda, 
it has really depended on where we are in the relationship. So for if it were tonight, for example, Amanda's here visiting in New York. So if we were together to go out and meet someone or meet someone on an app and bring them home, then sure. I would not go out by myself and bring someone home to Amanda and say, surprise, we're going to have sex with this person. Now, that's that's not cool. That's like that's the straight male fantasy of what polyamory is like. That's the porno version. In real life, you don't surprise anyone with anything because that's not a good way to live. That's fucked up. So the boundaries in the setup in my relationship are that uh, there's everybody determines their level of involvement and everyone has their level of disclosure. For us, if I, if I match with someone on an app, I don't, you know, if I told Amanda every single time I match with a person on an app, like we just wouldn't talk about anything else because I'm pretty active. Because for me in New York, dating is very social for me. Uh, Amanda has a, a ton of uh, girlfriends in California, and, and by girlfriends, I just mean women with whom she hangs out, not any, yeah. anything romantic or sexual. She has just a ton of friends in California, and so her and, and she's got a team. She's very socially fulfilled. Most of the friends with whom I grew up on Long Island, they no longer live in New York City. They're all in Westchester. They're married and have kids. I go on a lot of dates in New York because I have a lot of free time, and so dating is very social for me. So the way that I run it is, I don't. Tell, well, Amanda and I don't have a discussion unless there's something to discuss. So if I'm going to go on a date and I'm in New York and Amanda's in California, I send her a text and let her know. And then she might have some follow-up questions like, oh, like, does she seem cool? Is she interested? Tell me about her. And usually, in I would say over the course of the time we've been together, Amanda doesn't really ask a bunch of questions until it's like date three. Because at that point, it seems like, oh, maybe you're going to continue hanging out with this person. Whereas if I were to just see them one time, I would make the decision about whether or not I were going to sleep with them kind of in the, in the field, in the moment. We have our boundaries set up in terms of what would be acceptable and what wouldn't in terms of like certain sex acts. Like, uh, I know some people have rules about like, don't take people back to your house. That's not one of our rules. Like I have a dog that wouldn't be tenable. So yeah, it's it's available. I I really haven't been overly active in that regard uh, without having discussions with her because I I like to have her involved. It makes me feel very connected to her. But a, one of our rules early on was like I I trust you to make the decisions for yourself, so make them. And I don't believe in like me or her having veto power. And so one of the ways that plays out in the practical sense, I remember very early in our relationship when she was hanging out with someone, she, I was just having a particularly bad day and she was on a date with a guy. And, and so she texted me to let me know she was going home with him. And I had this experience where I was like, oh, this kind of sucks for me, not because she was going to go sleep with him, but because I was having a bad day and I wanted to just like get on the phone and talk to her about what my day was going to be, had been like. And then she was not available for that. And so the, the thing for me became, I don't want to tell her not to do this because I don't want to set the reference point of something happened in my life and now she has to make alterations. And so the way I tend to run it is like, if you're thinking about doing it, do it. I trust our connection. I trust our communication. If if something weird comes up, like she sleeps with someone and then I'm bothered by it, I'd rather, I'd rather have the hard conversation after the fact than before. Mm. Because if you sleep with somebody, like she can't unfuck him. So now we just, we're sort of in a position where we have to do the work as opposed to if I were to text her and I'm bringing someone home and she's like, Oh, I'm kind of feeling weird. I'd rather you didn't. Now I'm in a weird position where I have to tell this other person, Hey, I know we just spent the night talking about this beautiful open relationship I have, but tonight's not going to be a good night. My partner's feeling weird. It, it puts Amanda in a weird position of saying no. It puts me in a weird position of having to like sort of take something back from that, that I may have said to this person. So we tend to just like give each other the, the, the option to make the decision that feels right for us in that moment. And then we discuss it the next day. And so the way that plays out practically is if Amanda is on a date, I tend to just say, I'll speak to you tomorrow. And then we catch up then. But you don't ask about the date or whether or not there was sex or does she, or is there a, an agreement within the container that if she's going to have sex, she's going to let you know. 
Yeah, well, yeah, but after the fact. So if she's if she's seeing the same person pretty consistently, I just I assume they had sex. I mean, you know, like if you had sex with a person on date three, you're probably going to fuck them on date four. Yeah, um, that's just how sex works. Um, but if there's, yeah, I, I would. No, but in terms of like, I, I think this comes down to what what monogamous historically monogamous people want to know is: Do I have to ask permission? Does she have to ask permission? And the answer is no. But the reason that works operationally is because we've had so many conversations that Amanda pretty much intrinsically knows like what my boundaries are. Mm, got it. Got it. Okay. What about the logistics? So right now you're in New York. She's in LA. So you no, know. no, she's yeah. So she lives in LA, but she's in New York this weekend. So we're together right now. Yeah. Well, right now, yeah. But I mean, the logistics of your relationship as a you know over the course of the year is that you guys are you know separated by three thousand miles. If if she were in New York, living either with you or in the same town, would that change things in terms of you know? your lifestyle? In other words, is it, is it more comfortable, easier? Does it work better because you see each other? I'll call it occasionally or you know, you you understand what I'm getting at? I do. No, no. It, it, it is easier in that there are fewer things to navigate when you're in a long distance relationship. So Amanda and I, uh, we see each other about two weeks to two and a half weeks out of any given month. And when we're together, we're like, we're, you know, I'm staying with her and she's staying with me. And so there's no point at which I leave her house when I'm staying with her in California and go on a date, right? Because I'm, I'm there with her. But I have been in poly relationships where I live with the person in, here in New York. And then it is, I don't want to say harder. It's just a different setup where you are in the position where you have to have more conversations and it is very much like I am going out on a date tonight. This is what my evening is going to look like. And then certainly you're not bringing a person back home with you. So you're sort of only dating people who can host you at their place. So in New York, having roommates is very common. So that's something you need to navigate. Uh, It also absolutely limited my choices in terms of who I would be going out with because it doesn't matter how much I like you. I am never going to fucking Brooklyn. I'm just like straight up never going to Brooklyn to fuck you. So it's not happening. Um, You really are a New Yorker. I'm just 100%. I'm just like, no, I'm not crossing a bridge or going through a tunnel to go on a date with you. So right now, as it stands operationally, if somebody lives in Brooklyn or Jersey or wherever and wants to go on a date with me, they come into Manhattan and we do that. And then we can come back to my place. Uh, whereas when I were, when I was living with a previous partner, I certainly like the, the, my travel distance was it's, I'm such a New York asshole. I'm like, I am not going East of sixth Avenue unless I'm South of 23rd street. It's just not happening. <laughs> so, so funny. It's such a it's such a specific thing. So like the number of people I could see was significantly fewer. But yeah, so when we when we move in together, whenever that is, uh, we will have to have a, a, a different structure. And so if if I'm living in LA and I meet someone, I will have to say to Amanda, okay, I'm going on this date. And you know, we may or may not wind up in a position where we are gonna go back to her place and, and have sex. Uh, I have some poly friends here in New York who are married and they obviously live together. And so when they, uh, when they meet other people, like one of the rules is they don't bring, they don't bring people back to their own house. They only have sleepovers or or meetings outside. So it it does change things. Everything is, you know, the, the, the container changes based on the situation and then each situation changes based on the specifics. uh, It gives you kind of an overview. I think It does. It does. Okay. So I, I understand the major differences at how it's different from let's call it swinging. I think, do they still call it swinging? They still call it swinging, right? Yeah. Swinging Um, is basically just so everyone knows to give it swinging is usually when a group of couples who are otherwise monogamous get together and it's like you're either at a sex club or a sex party and it's, it's almost like swapping partners. Um, so that, it, you know, that's like, it takes place during, in a very specific container. And so it's more, there's a lot more independent exploration in polyamory and non-monogamy than swinging. Okay. Does that 
sort of world of swinging apply to your relationship and polyamory too? In other words, could you find yourself in that type of setting as well? And would that be considered the inside of that container? I could, certainly. Uh, within the context of my, less so with Amanda, but within the context of my history as a person in poly and open relationships, I'm going to, I'm going to give them a shout out. So there is a, a, an organization I belong to called the new society for wellness or NSFW. It's uh, on Instagram. It's at, we are the NSFW. And so they're basically like a, a sex education and sex organization here in New York. They put on great events for uh, everything from educating people about kink lifestyle. So they do like, you know, like Dom sub 101 classes. They do different places where, you know, you can, if you're into historically vanilla sex, you can go and learn about these things and then go home and do them with your partner. They also have things that, you know, they're very, uh, there's stuff that where they just like try to decriminalize sex work, et cetera. They also throw more traditional sex parties. And so historically for the past like three or four years, uh, I have a history of, of going to these parties with partners or, or friends of mine. Amanda and I have have been to a few together. But even within that context, I would say historically, most of the time when I go to a sex party, I don't wind up meeting someone and having sex with them there. I usually wind up having sex with the people that I brought to the party. It's just we're doing it in this atmosphere of like, oh, look, there's people having sex over there or whatever. Uh, but yes, there, there is the option in my Amanda, in my relationship with Amanda, where we could go to a party and one or both of us might meet a person either either meet them there for the first time or run into someone we know and then have a sexual exploration or experience or interaction with that person there. Or we could take someone home together. Everything's an option. I would say most of the time, Amanda and I, like we tend to... It, it, so we use the word play in the poly community, in the kink and, and, and poly community. It's, it's uh, anything that really is purely sexual is play. So a sex party is usually called a play party. And the most of the time we wind up playing with other people together in a party environment, uh, whether it's another couple or, or an individual. And uh, then there are many times where I have been to parties and, and by myself or with friends and not played at all, simply because I go for the, the social atmosphere and to just hang out and see my friends. You know, you guys have been so incredibly honest um, publicly. Mm-hmm. Has that been something that in any way you either regret or has been a hindrance or I wish we didn't or, you know, any issues with family because, you know, there's, there's a lot of judgy people out there. You know, no, I, I'm, I'm, I acknowledge how lucky I am because there are so many people in the world who they, they come out and they're as whatever they are, as gay, as poly, whatever. And they experience such like real trauma from the people in their life, not accepting them. There was a long time where I felt I might not be accepted. And when I, I remember when I first told my, my friends, my, my three best friends with whom I've grown up, they, they, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm polyamorous. I I can't be with just one person. And they just laughed at me and they're like, oh, there's a name for it. That's good. Cool. (laughs) They were just like, yeah, we just thought you, you like sucked at being with one person, but it's cool that there's a name. There's other people like you. This is dope. And then now, you know, these are, these are guys I've known since I'm 16. Now they're, they follow up. They're like, dude, when are you going to write a poly book? You got to like, there's, there's a vacuum there. You got to go in and write this book. So I'm very supported there. When I told my mother, and I'll never forget this. It was the most Linda Romanello response she could have. When I first told her I was polyamorous, I was dating two women at the time. I was in, in a triad, uh, which meant that all three of us were dating one another. And I told my mom, I'm dating these two women. We're, you know, they're bisexual. We're all together and we're, we're like going on vacation together, et cetera. And the first thing she said was, that makes so much sense for you. And it was totally like loving and accepting. And then it was about 45 seconds later, she just said, doesn't that get expensive? That's so <laughs> and, awesome. And I was like, yeah. She's going to be time. like, that's pricey, no? She's like, yeah, like, so you buy three dinners every time you go on a date? Yes, mom, that is how it works. 
That is really freaking funny. I love that. You know, this is such an it's such an interesting world. I'm reading um, I'm reading the book Sapiens. Um, It's such an interesting book. And, you know, one of the things that he was talking about in the book is that, you know, we're the only primates that are monogamous. And it's that's I mean, that's something to think about, isn't it? I mean, we, but you know what? At the same time, we're the only primates that have the internet. So I understand <laughs> when people, because here's the thing. A big part of evolution is to get to the point where your cognitive function allows you to stand apart from those like you. You know, our genetics is, we're, we have like 98% of the same DNA as a banana. So, you know, it's, yeah, we're the only primates who are monogamous. We're the only primates who who live in houses and have working toilets and, and you know, subjugate one another to the degree that we do. We're the only primates that, that have war and art, etc. And so the argument that other primates don't do something or do something doesn't really move me that much because we are we have a higher cognitive ability than than anyone else it's worth it, it is interesting to note that it is not within our what i would say standard biological or sociological programming but neither is sitting on trains to get to work you know i look at i look at my dog and i walk her several times a day and i She's so well-trained. She's a beautiful, beautiful animal. She's a half-English bulldog, half-Boston Terrier. And I live in a building in New York City. And so the, the path that we take to get out of the building, we leave my apartment, make a left in the hallway, right in the hallway. Then we get into an elevator. And the elevator goes down eight floors and opens. And then we go around and we're in the lobby. And I have to wonder, what is happening in her brain? She knows that we go into this box and then the box opens, the door to the box opens again, and we're just in a completely different place. Like, does she conceptually understand the concept of an elevator? Of course not. She's a fucking dog. But if she had to, she could still find her way home in the elevator. She knows what's going to happen. And so the fact that, like, we, are, we do things every day that aren't part of our biological or evolutionary or sociological programming that, you know, from 10,000 years ago isn't an overly compelling argument when the majority of our society is that exact kind of thing. So monogamy is something that people can do. Just because primates don't do it doesn't mean people shouldn't do it. Mm. And so I'm very much in favor of people's agency and their sexual expression. And I very much believe that there are people for whom monogamy is not only the right fit, but the only fit that will truly make them happy. And I want those people to have it and be fulfilled and happy and and I get all the stuff from monogamy that you can, it, it, you know, it can be this beautiful spiritual practice. Um, I just also hope that they have the same level of understanding for me. Here, here. Well said. I love that. All right. I want to switch gears up a little bit. That was super helpful. I really feel like I have a much better understanding of that world. I want to move into the art of fulfillment. I want to talk Mm. about some, I'm going to ask you some questions that are probably going to be out of left field. Just roll with it. What is an unusual or an absurd thing that you love? Fancy candles. <laughs> um, I don't. Mm. I don't know if it's absurd, but I do know it. It, it seems a little sort of out of character, you know. But I, I think it's not something I need. It's complete luxury. I. I. Um, oh, and this, this is just. It put me in mind of that something that I truly love. This is something all people who were previously poor at some point in their lives love. My favorite game in the world is guess how much I paid for this. There's nothing I love more than getting a great fucking deal on an expensive item and knowing that even though cognitively I know that the product, like to, to produce the item costs $20 and they're marking it up to 2000 but to know that the retail was 2000 and I got it for like $280, i am like, yes, guess how much I paid for <laughs> that um, comes from you. That comes from your mother, clearly. Absolutely. Yeah. My mom is big on value. Absolutely. She loved luxury and value. Okay. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about, or you've completely shifted your position on? <sighs> Fuck, man. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, all right. So one is certainly drugs. I was anti-drug for most of my life. And then I tried MDMA for the first time. And I thought if I was so wrong about this, what else could I have been wrong about? And uh, another, another big, 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 big thing for me is what I would say um, consciousness or spirituality. Now, I definitely do not use the term spirituality. That is the term that everyone else is it tends to use. I just look at it like greater access to more pieces of my mind and more conscious recognition of when my ego is at work versus when my subconscious is at work. It just, it just took me a lot to get there. Uh, the other thing, the, a belief about which I have radically changed my mind is my own worthiness. I, for a very, for many years, believed I was inherently broken and rotten and uh, didn't deserve to live. And once I worked through a lot of the childhood trauma, I changed my mind about that. I feel like I'm not an inherently terrible person. I have done some things of which I'm still not proud and I don't think ever will be, but I've learned lessons from them. And I, I really and truly feel that if you dig deep enough, you'll find a reason that anyone does anything. There are very, very few things happen in a vacuum. And that, that is huge. I, I just think like exploring the stuff that happened underneath the surface. That yep. is, that's huge. Love that. What is a goal that you, you had in your mind, you know, when I achieve this thing, my life is going to be amazing. Like just, if I could just get this thing, and then you got it and you went, no, fuck, yeah. that didn't do it. If I, could, if I could just make six figures, if I could just make seven figures, if I could write a best-selling book, if I could get a seven-figure book deal, if I could, uh, you know, if I, if I could have abs. And this is, this is always the thing. And there is, so I teach a lot about the hero's journey and stage nine of the hero's journey in the, in the condensed 12 step model is what's called seizing the sword or the reward. And this is the tangible thing that the hero gets uh, toward the end of the quest. And I, when I teach it, it's, you know, I use just, I love alliteration. So gold guns, girls, glory, it's, it's some sort of physical thing. And it's the thing that you think you want, uh, but it's not the thing you need. And one of the big things is that like, I, you have to get it. You have to get it because there was nothing in the world. You know, if I'm working with somebody back in my fitness days and they want abs, there's nothing I can say to talk them out of the idea that abs are going to make them happy. The only thing that I can do is help them get the abs. And then when they realize that didn't make them happy, figure out the next thing. And one of the things I always talk about is the idea of um, what your job really is. And so many people think that their job is to be a coach or whatever. Your job is not coaching people. Your job is not the I help statement in your Instagram bio. So on a deep level, all of our jobs, everyone has the same job. It is, it's to get people from one level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs up to the next level in some area of their life, whether that is, you know, money or whatever else. And so you can't talk someone out of wanting to make seven figures. The only thing that you can do is accept that it's your job to help them make seven figures, not only because that's the reason they hired you, but because out of service to them, only by helping them get to seven figures are you actually helping them realize that seven figures won't make them happy. And then when they get there, supporting them through that dissolution and that, that disorientation of now I have it and I'm bereft and what do I do? And then help them figure out what the next thing is. I love that. With every level comes a new devil. What are you currently struggling with? Yeah. I mean, the big thing right now is trying to figure out if I want the things that I say I want and then wondering, like, well, if I want those things, why am I not, why am I not working toward them? So big, big one last year, as I mentioned, was trying to realize like, all right, I definitely don't want to do this fitness thing. I kept thinking to myself, I want to do it because I had so much wrapped up in the achievement of having built all this internet real estate and having this big name attached to it and all this shit. But 
really, I just didn't want it to have the effort to have been wasted by now I'm not doing anything and the money dries up because I, I liked the money coming in. It was easy. But now that that's done, it's more, well, what are the things that I like doing to generate the money that allow me to live? And so for me, the, the, the level is really figuring out like, well, how, fuck, like, let me detach from money. How much do I need versus how much I want? Like, what am I going to do with it? What do I do with my money? What do I even do with this shit? <laughs> and no. um, at this point, you know, I have a, I have a really, really beautiful business. I, I, I'd like it to be a little bit more streamlined because I let things fall through the cracks and I, and I hate feeling like I forgot shit. And I, and I don't like feeling like, oh, I was supposed to get this to a client and I forgot I'm an hour late and whatever. So I just, I just don't want any of those moments. So I, I'm, I'm working on like, you know, hammering out the things that make me feel disorganized. But I love teaching storytelling workshops. I love getting to the point where I'm in front of a room full of seven to 10 to 12 people and just teaching them all of this stuff and then being able to like go home and write about it. And so the devil is the temptation to scale, to just be like, oh, if you turn this into a book and then turn this part into a course, and then you can, you can have marketing, you can add selling the storytelling course. And I'm like, do I really want to fucking do all that fucking shit? I'm like, no, man, I just want to, I just like teaching. I just, right mm. now, I just like teaching it. I don't want to do the other shit. If somebody came along and did it for me and took my content and they were like, hey, we did the thing and we wrote the sales page and now it's just on the internet and you're going to make an additional like $8,000 a day, I wouldn't say no. But I'm really just working on honoring my authenticity, my truth. I'm like, all right, I'm not, I'm not taking action on that thing. I guess it's not that important to me. And instead of beating myself up and making myself feel shitty about not doing it, I could just be like, oh, yeah, I guess maybe I really don't want that thing. Mm, that was so good. I needed to hear that. That was really, really good. What's your thoughts on uh, Donald Miller's uh, story brand? I think it's great. I think it's very, very good. I definitely think it's um, it's very businessy, which is good. It's not bad, but um, and and it's it's good for branding. It's good for business. It doesn't it doesn't pay as much homage to the art of storytelling as I want. It's more a little bit more formulaic, in much the same way that like copywriting is pretty much paint by numbers. Storytelling can be. I have. But anything you're going to build for absolutely massive consumption by so many people uh, has to be more generalized. And, and, you know, and honestly, like maybe it's my ego just being like, well, that thing is huge and my thing is small. So like mine is like all artistic and not as many people are going to get it. I don't fucking know. You know, it's like it's just his, it's his it's his way of doing it. And it's helping a lot of people. And I like the book and it's awesome. And if I wrote a book and it sold that many copies, I'd be fucking I'd be. So, Donald, if you're listening, you killed it, bro. Keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In this moment, just like kill my ego and just be like, it's it's fucking great. Do that thing or do mine or whatever. Either way, learn how to tell stories. You're going to be fine. I love that. Okay. Two more questions. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about. So we're going to take fitness, polyamory, psychedelics off the table. Anything that you have a passion for, what would it be? Oh, man. Fuck. I think, but I don't know if I'm not known for this. I, I think that the, you can absolutely go through like 90% of life not saying anything original and just quoting movies and you'll probably be okay. If you have enough movie quotes in your back pocket, you can really say the right thing at almost always the right time. So maybe it would be a TED Talk constructed entirely of movie quotes where I don't say anything that's my own. <laughs> But other than that, I mean, I think uh, interior design, I really like that. I think I could, I could tell people why the, their environment is super important. Now, I feel like I'm known for, I don't know, I've, I've, everything that I really love, I've put into my brand. It's, you can, it's findable on social media. Uh, everything from my love of Gargoyles as the greatest Disney cart or the greatest cartoon that's ever been released to, you know, like, brand new being the best band of all time. It's, it's all there. I, I, it, it would be really hard. I love it. No, that's a great answer. It, it shows me that you really live in the life that you want to be living. Um, okay. Last question. What one question, we'll change it up. What, what one question would you like to ask me? Oh, do you like doing the podcast? And I don't mean like, do you, do you like doing, cause you're clearly enjoying yourself, but 
I'm always wondering, like with podcasters, you this is like homework. You've got to do this every fucking week. Do you, do you ever just get sick of being like, oh, I got to fucking talk to this asshole now? Like, what never. is it? You never just feel like it's an obligation? No, the only time I feel like it's an obligation is when I'm put in the awkward position of somebody that I did a podcast interview that I really respect and like and asked me to do a favor to interview somebody and I'm not interested and I don't know how to tell them that I don't want to do it because they've been so kind to me. So I do it sort of obligatory. And the reason why that's difficult is because I'm just not interested. So I only pick podcasts. I only pick interviews that I'm interested on. So like to be able to have a conversation with you about a subject like polyamory that I fucking know nothing about and being able to get you to truly like feel like to feel comfortable to be able to talk about it so that I can learn and separate any opinions that I have, whether it's polyamory or psychedelic or anything that we're talking about, is so incredibly interesting to me. Um, what isn't interesting is talking to one more life coach. Like I, I want to shoot myself if I talk to, you know what I mean? Or talking to somebody about fitness and how to get great abs, like things like that. I, I just, I can't do. So to answer the question, I absolutely love, love, love it as long as I have an interest. Because the moment I don't have an interest, somebody feels it and they're like, oh, he phoned that one in. Got it. So uh, how, and, and forgive me for not knowing the answers. How, how often do you do the podcast? Twice a week. So you do it twice a week. And yeah. are there, is it one solo cast, one interview, or how, do, how does that get set up? Uh, Mondays is a long form interview, which is what I just did with you. And Fridays today is an interview, um, not an interview, a conversation with my wife. Okay. We call it Friday date. So um, we get in the studio and we talk about whatever's up. You know, we have a five year old daughter and, you know, we just got back from living in Italy uh, for a few months. And so we podcast all through Italy and, you know, whatever challenges we're going through, we share. And uh, I love having that conversation as well. So those are the two episodes I do every week. And then I do, as uh, as part of a, a bigger thing, I do a, uh, a work hard, play hard masterminds that is different than uh, any mastermind out there. For example, let's see, mutual friends, Chris and Lori Harder came to the last one we did in uh, the south of France. And when uh, they woke up in the morning, I had um, vintage cars that were waiting for them outside of their hotel. There was 20 of us there and I had 1960s, 70s, Ferraris, you know, et cetera, old Porsches um, that were all lined up. And we went on a, uh, a car ride through the French Riviera. And then we did a goal setting session in a castle in Ez. The next morning, I had uh, speedboats that were waiting for them. And we went off to Saint-Tropez and partied for the day and some exercises over there. We just did a couple of months ago, month and a half ago, we went uh, truffle hunting in Italy. And then we went back and learned pasta, pasta making from some Italian grandmas. And so the experiences are for people that, you know, they love what they do, but it's all they do. They just keep working, working, working. They just never take the time to enjoy their lives. So I just do these amazing events. And the, the two we have this year are going to be Mykonos in, uh, in June. And then at the end of the year, it's going to be uh, Marrakesh in, uh, in Morocco. So that's fantastic. If there's anyone who didn't already know about that shit, who's listening to this podcast, that was like a beautiful non-pitch pitch. I'm so interested. That is fantastic. Thank you for, thanks for sharing that. That was, it's really nice to hear someone who's so passionate. I have been terrified as you might imagine, I, I often get asked, John, why don't you do a podcast? And my answer is always, because then I've got to do the podcast every week. It's like now it's a commitment. It feels like homework. And it's really nice to just be able to ask that question and get such a, an honest and enthusiastic answer. And so it's really nice to hear that someone is not just within their zone of genius, but within their zone of love, because I think those two things can exist separate from one another. There are things that many people are awesome at, but don't bring them joy. And, and you know, again, in the same way that I was, you know, top tier in the world at fitness. And now if you ask me to do your macros, I, I'm just going to hang up on you. It can be the same thing. And it's, re it's really nice when the, the proficiency and the passion 
have complete and total interplay between the two of them uh, because that is that's real profound and you you obviously have that and it's great to to hear how much you love it and you're you're very good at this i i, I don't do as many podcasts as i am asked to do specifically because many Interviewers seem to be phoning it in, but you came in with really exciting questions. You you knew references from other interviews that didn't. You really do treat this like an art form. And if anything, it reinforces for me the fact that I, I should probably not do a podcast because I'm probably not going to do it anywhere near as well as this. You really, you killed this. And, and I really just want to honor you for that and show deep gratitude for treating me with that, the level of respect that you do and you do for all your guests because this is this is really, it's an art form. It's not just, you know, two people setting up a microphone and chatting, you really, you really made me feel very special. And I just want to, I want to say thank you. And I know that it's your podcast and your listeners here do this every week, but as someone on the receiving end of it, I don't get it that often. So truly, thank you. This was really fantastic for me. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Give Amanda a big hug for me and let's make sure we connect somewhere in the world. I will. Absolutely. Thank you again. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.